Thank you for tuning in to Adversity University, and welcome to class. Hey, everyone. This is Sean. Just finished up an interview with a guest that I wouldn't have expected back when we started the podcast. We had a ex-bachelorette contestant, JJ Lane, and he had a great story. It was, it was one of those episodes where we just kind of let him run, run and tell his story and uh, a bit mesmerizing, you know, uh, reminds me of the, the Jacques Lamoureux episode or Holden Reaping where, you know, we, we just kind of gave them the platform and let them tell their story. They knew what the podcast goal was and incorporated a lot of advice and, you know, a lot of things that you can learn from his story uh, as well as it just being, you know, a very interesting, very cool story. So really glad that we got to hear from him today and really looking forward to hopefully continuing that relationship with JJ. Garrett, what do you think about today's interview? Well, to be honest, Sean, when you first uh, said we were interviewing a Bachelorette contestant, I was a little nervous because when you watch those shows, no disrespect to those guys, uh, you know, you don't necessarily think about the coolest people, at least in my opinion, but you know, what a great guy and, you know, really humble now and obviously went through quite a bit of, uh, you know, stuff, a, a really crazy journey, a roller coaster of a life. But, you know, he seems to be doing a lot better now and has the knowledge through going through those experiences to, you know, help him maintain the life that he does now. Um, and as Sean mentioned, very knowledgeable and super happy that we were able to talk to him and pick his brain on, you know, some of the things that we really haven't touched on before uh, during this podcast. Yeah, he is kind of a well-rounded adversity, if you can call it that, because, you know, some of the things are out of his control, such as his, um, you know, his blood disease. What was the exact name of that? Uh, hemophilia. Um, his blood doesn't clot as others would. So, you know, um, in an email he sent to me, he's like, if, if he blocks a shot the wrong way, you know, he'll be hurt for three months because that blood will just pool and pool and pool and it won't clot and his injuries are just really magnified. You know, that's out of his control, but he finds a way to get around that. And then some of the other things, you know, later in life are, you know, inflicted by himself. And, you know, we get into that into the podcast. But uh, a knowledgeable guy, clearly a very smart guy, the way he talks. And, um, yeah, it, it was a really good interview. And, you know, he even pokes some fun at the Bachelorette contestants himself. So he knows that that's not exactly the best group of guys. Let's kick it on over to J.J. Lane. Monument Hockey Academy provides the highest level of developmental training available today. With intense focus on individual skills including skating, stick handling, shooting, game awareness, and competition, MHA offers players the opportunity to take advantage of up to 15 hours of on and off ice time per week to continue their personal development outside of team-specific training. Our coaches bring Tier 1, college, and pro experience and are trained in the latest and most cutting-edge programming in the world. Our academic support staff provides guidance and coaching with a variety of educational platforms, including including online, in-person, and hybrid models, while ensuring students' NCAA eligibility from middle school through graduation. At MHA, our goal is to provide an opportunity for every player to reach his or her maximum potential, both on and off the ice. For more information or to schedule a visit, go to monumenthockey.com. Today's guest is best known for his appearance on the hit TV show, The Bachelorette. He was a part of season 11 as well as Bachelor in Paradise season 2. Today, he lives in Denver, Colorado and works at the Forbes M&A Group as an investment banker. Thank you for joining the podcast, JJ Lane. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, good intro. You know, it's funny. I didn't know that it was season 11 or season 2, so um, 
I, I appreciate the reminder. It's been <laughs> six years. I was actually telling my wife today, um, six years ago in March is when we started filming for Bachelorette. So um, it <laughs> six years has flown by. It does not seem that long ago. Yeah. Uh, we'll get more into the Bachelorette a little bit later, but uh, you were born in Denver and you still live there today. What do you love about Colorado so much that's kept you here or there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've lived in, in Santa Barbara, California, um, Binghamton, New York, uh, New York, you know, Manhattan, New York City, um, and Denver. And, and I kind of found my way back uh, each time to Denver. And, and, you know, I think partly, you know, it's, you know, the cost of living side of things used to be a great benefit. Um, as you know, this mass exodus from California has happened. Um, the cost of living is, has gone away a little bit, but, uh, being able to just look up, see the mountains every day, our climate's awesome. Um, it used to be a big seeker, right? Everyone's like, Oh, you're from Colorado. Must be cold and snowy all the time. And, you know, now I guess the cat's out of the bag, you know, you can wear shorts and a t-shirt probably 90% of the time. And even when it does snow, it, it melts the next day because it's 65, right? So, um, you know, that's fantastic. I'm not a huge outdoor guy, but, uh, you know, I, you know, you can, I mean, you can go skiing, you know, it's, it's a two hour drive up to, to Breckenridge or Keystone. Um, and if you like to hike, you know, it's, it's perfect for that. Um, I'm probably the worst Colorado native, you know, I, I tend to stay inside and, and, you know, not take advantage of that often, but, uh, looking out my window, it looks beautiful all the time. Yeah. You notice it a lot. Like when I went to go play hockey in Texas or Pittsburgh, just that drive without the mountains next to you. And it's one of those things you don't realize what you have until it's gone. And, uh, oh, yeah. just working jobs this summer, it's like, Oh, where are you from? And there are very few natives around I've noticed, or at least where I was working. Cause it's all, Oh, I moved here from New York, moved from California. And you're right. The cat's definitely out of the bag on Colorado. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, it's, it's a great quality of life place as well. Right. I mean, it's the expectations, like if you, if you work in finance in New York expectation is, Hey, you're, you're 120 hours. Right. And, and it's an expectation to be a sweatshop. Whereas here, everyone really kind of values that, that, that quality of life. And, um, <clears throat> you know, they, they want you to have that life outside of work. And, and so you, we're seeing a lot of people, you know, really pushing from, like you said, New York or California want to come here. So, um, yeah, love Colorado. And, you know, at this stage, it's, it's probably going to be home for, for the, the, the long term is, is my wife and I, we, we've toyed with ideas of looking elsewhere, but you know, the day, I think this is where, where we'll stay settled. And a beautiful place to stay. You mentioned, uh, in your childhood, you moved around a lot. Was there a sport that stayed consistent for you as obviously you moved to different States? Uh, did you find something steady that carried with you to every state and kind of what was your childhood like growing up? Yeah. So I was a baseball player. I mean, I, I thought I was going pro my whole life. That was like my thing. My dad built a batting cage in our backyard with a pitching machine. Um, and then in 1995, uh, we got the IHL. I don't know if you guys even remember that, but uh, it was basically like the, so we got the Denver Grizzlies, which IHL affiliated the New York Islanders. Um, they came into town, Tommy Solo, uh, you know, longtime goaltender for the Islanders, Ziggy Palfy was on the team. Um, and so like these guys came in and they ended up, I think they may maybe lost 10 games all season long. Um, won the Turner cup, which is the equivalent of like Calder cup in the HL, something like that. Um, and I was hooked on hockey. I had gotten some tickets from a doctor, <laughs> 
which is part of another story. You know, my, my hemophilia, which is disease I have, my hemophilia doctor gave me tickets and like, oh, hey, we have these two tickets. Why don't you guys go check out the hockey game? We went and we were just unbelievably hooked. Um, and that was kind of the, the pivotal moment for me where I fell in love with hockey and like obsession. I mean, I was, I was obsessed with it from that point on. I mean, it was kind of everything I lived and breathed. Um, and then the very next year we got the abs. And so you go from, you know, seeing the, the, the Grizzlies win and then the next season, the abs come in, they win. Um, and you got Sackick, Forsberg foot, we got Wall on a trade and, you know, December, I think of, of 96. And, um, it was just, <laughs> it was an unbelievable time to be a hockey fan in Colorado. Sounds like my dad's hockey story growing up. He, his dad got tickets for him to go to a hockey game and he told his dad, I'm not going to that. Uh, and ended up going and fell, fell in love with it. And he's, you know, to this day, I think he was eight years old when he went and knows every second, knows every player, remembers the score. He probably knows the, the temperature of the weather outside. And it's funny you mentioned the old IHL. My dad refed uh, professional hockey for 26 years, mainly in the IHL. So a lot of the names that you just mentioned, I'm sure he's very familiar with. Uh. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. It's just, it, it truly was like, it, it, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I, I look back now and, and, you know, I don't track what equipment guys are wearing as much. Right. But like as a super impressionable kid that was obsessed with hockey, I mean, you could, you know, there'd be a, a clip in the newspaper that say, you know, Peter Forsberg, you know, fights for a loose puck with so-and-so of, you know, such other team. And, you know, they'd say that, but I'd look and like, it clearly wasn't Forsberg. And I'd look and I was like, that's Sylvain Lefebvre's skate, right? I mean, you were just so in tune to every little detail of that team. And, uh, you know, because you were just obsessed with it. And, and so, you know, and, and I look back and I wish I still had some of that passion. Um, you know, it, it changes a lot now as, you know, as you age and you start meeting these guys and, um, you know, or, you're 38 and these guys are 20 years younger than you. And it's, it's tough, but uh, you know, as a young kid um, it set such an awesome example. And so for me, hockey was, was the obsession. I, I moved to, to upstate New York to, to chase hockey. Um, and I moved to, to Southern California to, to attempt to go to school. Um, and that lasted like one semester. And I was like, all right, I got to go play juniors and, and get, get hockey out of my system. So you were diagnosed, as you mentioned, with uh, hemoph uh, hemophilia in the second grade. Um, this is a disease where your blood doesn't clot normally, making minor wounds very dangerous and potentially life-threatening. So how did this impact you as a child, and how do you continue to battle it now? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot easier now because I, I don't skate that often. Um, as a kid, it was tough because, uh, you know, those doctors that gave me the hockey tickets, they're the ones that said, hey, you can live a pretty normal life, but you just – don't play football or hockey, um, avoid anything, you know, no rough housing. And, and, you know, I understand their point, right. They're, they're trying to protect these kids. And, and I look at so many of the kids that have my, my disease, um, they get diagnosed from an early age, um, and they're just sheltered. And so their parents take that advice and these kids just become so coddled. They're so frail. They're not working out. They're not doing normal people activities, right? Normal, um, you know, boy activities. And, and I think that's half the problem. And, and so for me, my parents didn't really coddle me. Um, I was getting hurt on a regular basis, right? Like 
whether it's getting kicked in the shin playing soccer at recess or, you know, and, and, you know, you're just constantly having these injuries and, and you're just learning to deal with it. Um, and it was just kind of part of life, but then it, it really magnified itself. Once I got a little older, um, hockey became much more physical. Um, and, and, you know, I think most of my injuries actually weren't from contact. Um, they were from, you know, I'd get a pulled groin. I just would pull them so much easier. And so when my groin would like pull blood would kind of go in, like most people like kind of pulls and some blood goes in, but mine would pull and it would just be a faucet. And so that muscle area would fill up, um, so much that basically like, you know, you'd have a gallon of blood in your groin or in your glutes. And, um, it just made, you know, recovery, skating, everything, just such a, a pain in the butt. And so I'd miss two months at a time of a season Then I'd come back and be healthy. Sometimes I'd be fine. And I'd, I'd play for a whole season. Other times, um, you know, I had one that, you know, essentially knocked me out December. I got this injury and I couldn't skate again until June. And so, um, it just really stunted my development sucked because it's embarrassing when you're trying to be tough and play through injuries, your teammates, you know, they don't understand half the time. Most of them don't even know that I have it. Um, you know, I don't advertise it. Um, and so then, you know, you come off looking soft, injury prone, you know, they're judging it. Oh, he's hurt again. And, you know, it was tough. Um, and it really hampered, you know, it, it was frustrating because I wanted nothing more than to just play hockey. Right. My goal wasn't necessarily NHL. I, I wanted to play college hockey badly. And, uh, um, it just wasn't in the cards. I, I couldn't stay healthy enough to, to really even be noticed or taken seriously. Um, and so, you know, that was kind of the, the biggest letdown for me. And, you know, I built my whole life wanting to be an athlete and that was an identity. Right. And so you have this identity from a, a, a child, right. From a young age, I want to be a baseball player, then a hockey player. Um, and once that goes away, it, you, you become lost, right? Like what is really your identity? Um, and so it took me, a, you know, several years to kind of refine that identity. Um, and so I, I think, you know, think about your podcast and adversity. Um, how do we get through adversity? I think one of the, the first things you have, to, you know, I think adversity a lot of times comes with a loss of identity um, and, and not having a purpose and, and not really kind of seeing a direction, right? It's like, you know, you, you're not, you don't have that compass now, right? So now you're just kind of floundering in, in the world and this is a tough place to flounder. Um, and I think that leads to then depression, um, which you know, magnifies and, and really can, can spiral on people. Um, and so that for me, you know, losing hockey was really losing that first kind of loss of direction and, and identity and, and not really knowing where I was going with my life. Um, and that was a huge challenge. Um, you know, and, and, and so trying to kind of find your, your next thing that you want to latch onto. Right. Um, and I think most driven or motivated people, they, they need that. Right. If, if you're you know, looking for average, you don't need it. Right. You just kind of wake up and go through the motions every day. Um, but I, I think most, you know, high performing athletes and, and guys that are listening to your podcast, you know, you want that purpose. You want that thing every day that you're waking up and striving for. Um, and when you don't have it, then, then you do sink into some depression and, and you struck and you struggle. 
going back, I think it is pretty funny how the doctors are the ones telling you not to play hockey when uh, that same doctor is the one who gave you the tickets and got you hooked in the first place. But uh, it's ironic, huh? Yeah. You mentioned it took you a couple of years to find that identity. And, you know, when you're going through depression, every day is so hard. How did you, you know, stay positive and stay in a good mindset while you were unsure of your direction in life? Yeah. You know, so great parents. Um, and so I, once hockey was kind of over and, and I realized it was like, I, I, was injured for the entire year of my last year juniors couldn't I didn't even play um I was like well I'm screwed (laughs) it's over um I I mean honestly like I had a lawn mowing business when I was 13 years old and I'd had it up until I left for for hockey and I was like well this is all I have um guess I'm just gonna start mowing lawns (laughs) and so you know I I had the bar set pretty low um but my goal was, well, I'm going to make this the best lawn mowing company I can have. Right. And, um, oddly enough, like I, I kind of leached onto that and, and, you know, I, I think, you know, I built something, right. So like, you know, I, I was focused on that building it. Um, and, and that kind of, you know, pulled me out a little bit, but, um, I still wasn't sold on it. Right. And, and I still was kind of looking and, uh, I had this business for a few years and, and ended up selling it because, um, I realized my next thing that I wanted to be, I was reading a bunch of books. I was always kind of obsessed with wall street. I didn't know what that meant. Um, I thought it was like boiler room traders, all this kind of stuff. But I was like, all right, my next goal is I want to work on wall street. And I just, that's what I was going to do. Um, had no degree was running a lawn mowing business, right? I mean, really perfect candidate for wall street. Um, but that's, you know, I, I made a new goal, right. And, um, I just kind of committed myself hundred percent to achieving that. Um, went back to college, you know, read every book I could, um, networked with every single person I could. Um, and, and so that was kind of the next goal. And, and so that was the identity, right. Was now I was going to, I was going to be an investment banker. Um, and so, you know, finding that identity and, and kind of striving to, to achieve something that frankly seemed impossible, right. If, if you had said, um, I mean, gosh, if, if I right now get a kid that, that came to me and he wants to work for me and his resume was um, mowing yards and he played some junior hockey, um, <laughs> like, all right, man, well, here's what you got to do. You need to go back to school and to a good school. You got to have a finance major. You need to probably have a three, eight GPA or higher. Or like, I'd be like, you've got a long ways to go. And I, I, I would say that you have about 1% chance of achieving any of the things I just outlined. Right. Um, but you know, it's, it's setting those lofty goals. I think it's smart to set those, you know, the smaller goals along the way too. And I've never heard anyone talk about adversity like that. I think you said adversity comes when you don't have direction or an identity. And, you know, you talked about it when you were playing junior hockey and you didn't know what you're going to do next. And obviously it wasn't the, the next greatest step, but the long mowing business that kind of helped you get out of the hole a little bit more instead of being, you know, six feet under now you're three feet under. And then you set another goal after that. And then you go after that and you solely dig yourself out of the hole that you think that you're in. So that just goes back to what you, what you just said, setting the lofty goals, but also setting little minimal goals along the way. So when you get there, you can turn and look back and be like, all right, I've gotten here. I've got a step closer. And it gives you confidence and motivation to keep going after that goal. Yeah, you, know, you, you nailed it, right? You, you have to, um, 
I always compare everything like the gym, right? You know, our, a couple couple quotes that always have stood out to me. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger said, "You have to burn to grow," right? And that that is true in the gym, but truly, it's true in life, right? Um, you're never going to grow and become better, um, and and you know, um, if, if you don't have a little pain, right? Um, you know, if everything is just easy all along right? And there's never any resistance or pushback. Um, it's going to be the path of least resistance, right? Uh, but you've got to get that callus and you've got to build some of that kind of resiliency up. Um, and so, you know, the gym kind of, you know, we all have been at that stage, you know, we're, we're grinding the gym, right? And, and every athlete has, has been there. Um, you know, the other one is you look at, um, you know, when I was, younger and I would be like, I just want to be jacked. Right. And you're like, Oh, I want to be 210. Right. And well, if you just, if you're 170 and you're just looking at, at 210 as the end goal, you'll never make it right. Because every day you jump on the scale and you're not, and you're still 30 pounds off, right. Or 35 pounds off, you're going to get discouraged. You're going to quit. Right. But he would say, Hey, I want to be 180. Right. 180 is my first goal. All right. And you hit it. Right. And I'm like, Hey, I want to, I want to do 10 reps at 185, and, and now you get that, right? All right. I want to do 225 for five reps, right? Now that's my next goal, right? And you have all these little things and now you're going to start seeing like you see progress, right? In your life. And now that's, it's keeping the juices going and now you're, you're validating yourself, right? And so it's so much easier to accomplish if you have the benchmark goals along the way. Um, but if I had just said, I'm going to be a managing director at Goldman Sachs, like, you know, unrealistic, right? It's just not going to happen. And I'm going to be super discouraged when Goldman doesn't hire me, right? As an intern or as an analyst or, a, you know, all along the way. So I think you've got to build up into it. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think you guys are spot on with setting those, those lofty unrealistic goals because those push you to work that much harder. You know, if your goal was just to work at a small company and have a small role, you're not going to do those extra things. If your goal is to work at Goldman Sachs, like you said, and be in a very high spot, you're going to push yourself to that higher standard along the way as well while achieving those smaller goals. Um, so when we were talking earlier, you shared the story of how your life changed abruptly in 2013. And I don't want to foreshadow any of the events. So could you tell that story of that five-year stretch you went through from 2013 to 2018? Yeah, it's, it's funny we're doing the podcast tonight because I, I actually didn't, realize until halfway through today that it was eight years ago to this day um that everything blew up um so yeah january 25th uh, 2013 um you know my wife my ex-wife and i got we we got separated um and then you know she i mean i came home from work one day and, and she was gone with my daughter um and t just drove to california and uh so then, you know, I had, I had started a tech startup um, that's currently going right now, doing really well, um, <laughs> worth a considerable amount of money. And uh, it was, you know, my best friend and then my ex-wife's two brothers, you know, co-founded it with me. Um, and so because of the, the, the impending divorce uh, on like February 2nd, they moved to kick me out of the company that I started. Um, so I had to hire a lawyer. It's a nightmare. I ended up leaving, um, you know, taking like 50 grand 
for my 40% equity, right? Which would be worth a lot of money right now. Um, February 14th, my job fired me um, because I was too big of a distraction because of all the, the drama around the divorce. Um, a lot of details I, I can't really share about that, but it was nasty. And, and so basically in, in the course of three weeks, you know, I lost, a, you know, a wife, a kid, a job and a startup. Um, and, and I'll, I'll bring it back to what I talked about earlier was I lost every one of my identities, right? Um, <clears throat> I was no longer an investment banker. Um, I was no longer an entrepreneur. I was no longer a dad. I, I was like, I mean, but I, I couldn't take care of my kids. She wasn't there. Um, and I wasn't a husband anymore. Right. And so, um, everything that seven years, yeah, essentially seven years of identity building, right. Um, was gone in three weeks, completely wiped out. Um, and you know, I think that, you know, and, and then shortly thereafter, um, you know, I had to move in with my parents. Um, and, and you know what, here I was the guy that I, in the prior story, right. I was talking about achieving and setting goals and setting these lofty goals and getting them right. Um, <clears throat> you know, what happens is, is you then, <laughs> you know, people, you know, stronger people than me wouldn't have probably let this affect them. Right. But I really spiraled in on myself because now I'm looking at my situation, my plight, right. I'm, you know, I felt sorry for myself. Um, on one hand, you know, I had led to some of this demise um, through ego, uh, getting over my skis, thinking my shit didn't stink. Um, you know, and then, you know, on the other hand, blaming others and whether it's, you know, justified or not, right? Like, um, you know, it's, it's a frustrating situation. And so then you're focused on, on the woe is me, right? And every day that you're, every day for me that I was focused on that, um, I was not focused on getting out of my rut, right? The rut got deeper. The hole was digger. You know, I kept digging it. Um, and I couldn't get a job. Partially, I was, I was essentially blacklisted in Denver finance, um, you know, only because you know, everybody had heard the stories, right? Everybody, you know, it was just a very public, dramatic thing, you know, and, and so everyone's like, you know what, it's just not worth the distraction, right? The same reason that my employer got rid of me. Um, and so my only skill set, right, was investment banking. And there's six investment banks in Denver. And we all know each other really well. I mean, I was toast, right? So it was like, do I change my career? What do I do? Um, you know, living with my parents, broke, you know, every penny I had was going to alimony and child support, right? Um, and, and I was running out of money quickly. And, you know, so that was, that was an absolute struggle. And, and, you know, rock bottom was, um, I had gone, you know, I had my daughter in the car and, um, I looked out the window and the, the tow truck was repossessing my car, right. With her car seat in it. Um, and it was just a horrible, horrible, you know, you know, the worst feeling in the world. Right. And, and, um, you feel like a failure as a father, as a man. Um, and so that depression was horrible and it's, it's crippling and it, it, it seeps into your head and it gives you thoughts that are not rational. And it gives you thoughts that, um, in the light of day, right. I, I sit here today talking to you guys 
is a very healthy, happy man. Um, and I wish I could have had that perspective a few years ago because you're sitting there thinking of bad things. Um, and so, you know, I've talked to, you know, a handful of, of acquaintances and people I've kind of met along the way that have had those bad thoughts, right? And I always tell them, like, I can promise you, as someone who was sitting there thinking of the creative ways that I could end this situation, right? Like, how can I do it? Um, and really, for me, the only thing that kept me going was I had a daughter and I just could not imagine letting her go, um, you know, be without a father. And, um, you know, I always tell them, like, there is light, right? You just have to persevere and you have to get to the light. And think, you know, telling myself now looking back, I mean, the light is so bright, right? Like I couldn't be, I'm happier today than I was ever when I thought that I was, had everything, right? Like, um, you know, I have an amazing wife, like the best marriage I could, you know, ask for. I have a great job. Um, my daughter is, is just so healthy. She's smart. She's awesome. Like I love getting to watch her play hockey and play Fortnite and just do all these things, right? I wouldn't have been able to see that had I not persevered, right? And so, um, you know, depression is a tough thing. And I think so many of us, you know, deal with it. We've seen the stuff with the hockey guys, right? The Bougards and all those guys. And, um, you know, I think it is a real challenge because no one wants to talk about it. Everyone's a little bit ashamed that they're dealing with it. I was ashamed, right? It's all about facade. Um, on surface, everybody thought at that stage that I was at my worst, that I was at my best, right? I was just on this TV show. Um, you know, I had hundreds and thousands, you know, a ton, tons of Instagram followers, right? And ton of Twitter followers and, and all of the things that society values, um, right? Like I could walk into a place and people knew my name, right? I was quote unquote famous, but I was miserable inside, but on the surface, everybody probably was like, you know, a lot of people probably like, Oh man, I wish I could be in his shoes. Right. No, fuck. You don't want to be in my shoes. Um, and I think that's the, the, the problem too. And I know I'm, I'm, you know, going a little, a few different directions, but I also see what's happened in society is, you know, social media creates highlight reels, right. And it creates people to, to think that everybody's life is fucking better than theirs. Right. And it's not my life looked better than others. <laughs> It certainly wasn't. And so, um, you know, I think for me, therapy was talking through it. And, and the best thing I ever did, I went to a wedding of my, one of my best buddies out in South Carolina. I couldn't afford to go. It was every penny I had, but I went. Um, and we're sitting at a bar with our mutual friend who was at the wedding. And I just told him honestly, he's like, how are you doing? I was like, I'll tell you right now, dude, I want to kill myself. And, and I, I hate my life. And, you know, so it's very honest. Well, like a week later, I get a phone call from those two guys. So Eric and Joe, and they go, Hey man, um, uh, we've got a game plan and this is not, we don't like the, the, the path you're going down and we need to get, get you back on track. He goes, so Eric is like, we're flying you to Michigan where they both live. We're paying for it. You're writing me a check though for 500 bucks. And I know that's painful because you don't probably have 500 bucks to your name. And we're going to sit down this weekend and we're going to draft a whole plan of how we're going to get back on your feet. And if you don't follow through on any of these steps along the way, we'll cash the check. So we gave, came up with this plan. I go back to Colorado and one of the plans was 
action, right? Getting out of the fucking bed, which as you know, anyone listening, right? If you're depressed, getting out of bed is impossible. <laughs> Doing anything is impossible. Like you're in your sweatpants and your t-shirt or your hoodie and you leave your bed a little bit, but then you like, you just want to go lay back down. Right. And you know, it's, you want to avoid reality. That's depression. And they're like, no, you're not going to do that. And he goes, every morning at 8 AM, I want an email from you and you better be at Starbucks and you better be working. First one was like dusting my resume off. Right. Secondly, I set a quota for how many jobs you're going to apply for. Right. It's basically like you have to be up. You have to be active. You have to start like changing the chemicals in your brain and setting new behaviors and new patterns. And so, um, so that changed everything. We start seeing a little progress, right? I'm already feeling better. Then like, I was really terrified to, to even date, you know, I was, I would just do it casually, but I didn't want to like expose who I was, right? I was embarrassed, right? I didn't want, you know, I didn't think that some girl who would be, you know, that I would want to date would actually want to date me, right? Like what uh, eligible, you know, female is going to want this divorced single father who has no job, lives at his parents, broke his shit, car was repossessed, right? Like who wants to date that dude, right? He's going nowhere. Um, and so I was totally ashamed. And, and so I never put myself out there um, other than very like, you know, you know, arm's length, right? I, I kept everyone very arm's length um, and never really allowed anyone to see, you know, truly inside. And somehow I got the courage. I was, I was playing like MLB the show or Madden one night. And I was like literally a full bottle of wine deep. And I saw this, uh, this girl had like liked the picture on my Instagram feed and I, it was only a tiny little picture, but I clicked on it and I was like, she looks gorgeous. And I never did this, but I was like, I just sent her a DM and that DM led to me being married to my current wife. Um, God, you know, bless her for somehow seeing the potential. Right. But it took people believing in you. So, you know, it's a huge win that, you know, I had those two buddies, right. That had worked with me that had known me from, um, one I was the boss of, and the other one was my boss. Um, they knew my potential, right. They believed in me. Kayla, she saw my potential. She believed in me, right. These people kind of, and, and so it was kind of all those things came together. Um, and then, you know, a, a miracle happened that, you know, I was able to, to get on at Forbes and, um, you know, the job opened up and, you know, the, the founder knew my, he knew who I was, um, both from bachelor, but also he knew about me from the prior drama. Um, and so he, you know, he's like, look, we all have shit in our lives. He goes, you know, that, that doesn't define us. And they took a chance on me. Right. And, and it was the best chance ever. Right. And so now everything's good, but man, had I done something stupid back, you know, in 20, 16 or 2017, um, you know, it, it, it would have just impacted so many people in ways that, you know, I, I didn't, I couldn't see selfishly back then. So, um, now we're sitting here at the eight year anniversary of it all. And, um, life is good. Right. And, and, you know, hopefully you have perspective to, to share with people and, and, you know, <laughs> save some, save some lives or at least save some, some futures and careers. 
hindsight's always twenty twenty, and you know, hopefully now you going through that experience. I know you mentioned that people close to you try to you know tell them about your story and how you got through the tough times. And uh, you know, you mentioned that a lot of people don't open up about their suicidal thoughts, and I think it's crazy in the culture and the society that we live in today that people really don't want to do that. And I think the best reason people should is going back to your example, as you said, you know, now three years down the line, you've gone through this experience. Uh, you know, you're starting to see the bright light. And when you're down uh, deep into the, the dark hole, you can't really see that light. So hopefully someone that has gone through that can, can start to give you the wisdom and say, hey, things are going to get better. Uh, and to your own credit, you know, you had two unbelievable best friends that really stuck by you and helped you get back on your feet. But you kept finding the light and uh, obviously very successful today. So that's an unbelievable story of, you know, persevering and, uh, you know, going through some terrible things, but always looking forward to the future. No, you're, you're dead on. Right. And, and I, I hope, you know, they, they do these campaigns, right. You know, the bell let's talk, right. You see that on Twitter and, um, you know, the, the thing is, is, you know, I, I think the onus some of the time has got to be on, on the healthy ones. Right. And what I've found is, you know, more times than not, we can, you know, even if someone's got the image, we can spot someone that's hurting, right? Like it's, you know, if you see someone that's hurting, like it, it, I, we, we as the ones that are seen clearly that day, you know, need to take it on ourselves to just be friends to them. Right. And, 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 you know, it sounds cheesy, but like just love them. Right. And, and care about them and, and be actively reaching out, right. Get them out of the house. You don't have to say, Hey man, are you suicidal? No, it's just, it's engaging with them. It's, it's knowing what the triggers are and it's getting them out of the house, getting them engaged. Um, and, and then just, they'll start opening up. Um, I think what happens is we get so busy, right? Like my, my two buddies easily could have been too busy, right? Or they could have had the best intentions, but once they went back to Michigan and they got in their jobs with their families, then they forget and they're too, right? Like that's the issue is like, and it's too easy to get too busy these days. And, you know, I, I've seen it firsthand. I had a buddy, um, best high school buddy that he was my goalie all the way through. We even moved to New York together, played juniors and he passed away, um, in November and he, you know, he was severely depressed. Um, and we, the issue was he, you know, and especially with COVID, the quarantine and and it's too easy to stay in now right and and too easy to isolate and too easy you know so if already you're struggling now like it's hard to say hey man like let's go out for a beer right i mean half the places in the country you can't even do that right the others if you're going to do it you got to wear a parka and a, a beanie right to even go have a beer somewhere and so um you know it's it's really tough in the situation we're in um to even make that effort but then yeah, if you're too busy or um, life gets in the way, right, it's, it's such a challenge. And, and so like, I don't have a great fix for it. Um, I guess my biggest thing is I just want to be, I guess I have a lot more sympathy or empathy maybe is the right word um, for those struggling and then, you know, want to kind of pay it forward because my friends paid it forward, right? So um, <laughs> anytime I can kind of help someone out, or even just talk to them. It's, 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 you know, it's critical. And, and honestly, if any of your listeners right there, you know, 
my email is on our, our website. You know, if you ever want to reach out, feel free to reach out to me as well. I don't know you from Adam, but, uh, you know, I'm always happy to talk as well. That's phenomenal. And I was going to ask if uh, your two buddies had ever gone through similar things because the plan that they set out for you and not only, you know, giving you goals and things to do, but also having, you know, a bit of a punishment, like it was a perfect system to get you out. Like, do you know if they had ever gone through that or were they just smart enough to kind of find something that would work for you? Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, my, the buddy that, that really hatched the plan. Um, so one buddy, Joe, he's the one I told what I was going through the, the one that hatched the plan and bankrolled the whole thing. Eric, uh, is, is probably the smartest person I know. Um, and, and, you know, it, it took a lot of insight, you know, and, and kind of thoughtfulness on his part, but, um, and then, you know, the other part was I was very candid. I told them, I said, look, I mean, like I hit nothing. I was like, I can't get out of bed. Right. Like, and so he's like, okay, hey, we're going to get you out of bed. Um, and, and, but like, yeah, he hatched the whole plan. And, and so it was just brilliance on his part. And I think not everybody has, you know, wise friends. Um, you know, wisdom is, is a hard, um, it's probably more, more rare than, you know, than Bitcoin right now, but, uh, it's, it is a great trade and I was very lucky, but, um, you know, it, it, even, even if you don't have that, right, it's, it's just, it's accountability is, is ultimately what they gave me. Uh, yeah, you talk about accountability and one thing that I kind of learned, I don't, you talk about, you know, the motivation and, uh, holding yourself accountable. I read David Goggins book, not sure if you've read it, unbelievable. Um, and you talked about how you didn't realize some of the things you were going through. Um, but he has a thing called the accountability mirror. And at the end of the day, no matter what you do, no matter what you say to people, when you look in the mirror at the end of the day, you have to live with the decisions that you have made. And it was crazy. I wish I could quote some of the things that he says, but if we, you know, if we use the accountability mirror, and I know it's hard in the time, especially when you're in a low point, but look at, look in the mirror every single day and say, you know, this is what I need to improve on, or, you know, this is what I need to do better. Because as you just mentioned, we're so caught up in society and social media and the opinions of other people. If you can look yourself in the mirror at the end of the day and say, I gave a good effort, I'm proud of who or the man I'm becoming, then that's really all that matters. I, I think that's wise, right? And, but we, <laughs> more, more than ever before, I think, nobody wants to accept responsibility for their life, right? And their shit and um, own their own stink, right? My dad always had the quote, he goes, you know, you, you got to own your stink. And, you know, it's, it's, the culture is becoming more and more, right? You know, blame others, right? I, I even, I, I mentioned earlier, right? Like I was a victim of it. Um, and, and still to this day, I struggle with, with some of the blame of, of, the woe is me, what happened in my life, right? I lost all this stuff and other people fucked me and all this stuff, right? But um, you know, to truly sit there and, 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 and take inventory of, of what you've done um, and why you're sitting in this situation, whether it's good or bad, right? I mean, if, if you've accomplished a lot, um, I think you should take credit, you know, humbly, you know, when you look in the mirror, right? And, and hey, I achieved X, Y, and Z today or I got promoted because I worked really hard, right? Those are good things. Um, and, and I caveat it all with, you know, humility because um, 
so many of the times when we, we do accomplish things like one pride comes before the fall every single time. And that was never more evident than it was with me back in 2013. Right. Uh, the, the more proud you are, right. The, the farther you have to fall. Um, and, you know, and I think too, when you do accomplish things, you're accomplishing it as a team, right? I, I look, you know, for, you know, for me, if I get promoted at my job, I, I certainly was not doing it just by myself, right? I've got 20 other bankers that are around me that I'm working on every day that are teaching me different things that are propping me up, right? That are putting me in chances to succeed. Um, and so it's not a, you know, zero sum game. It's not, I did everything or I did nothing. Right. And so, um, that's where I think the humility comes in. And, and especially as we, we go forward right now, like, um, I think our society in general lacks humility. And so um, it's a great quality and, and trait to have. And, and I think uh, in the long run, you know, it, uh, it, it helps you stare in the mirror and gives you better perspective at the end of the day um, for truly how great was I? Or, hey, did I, get, did I benefit from other people's talents and skills as well? And I'm standing here as, as a decently smart guy that, that did pretty well over this last year. But um, so, yeah, a little meandering there. But, you know, I appreciate what you're saying about just being able to look yourself in the mirror. You talk about self-accountability and ownership. And it sounded like that divorce ended bitterly. Uh, you know, she left kind of without telling you. And looking back now, are there things that you think you could have maybe done differently to keep the relationship in a better place? Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that I did was I cheated on her. Um, and so I should never have done that. Right. And, and so that's, that is the genesis of the bitterness, right. And we all can make excuses. And, and like I said, you know, I can give you a hundred reasons for why it was not a good marriage and all this stuff. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, you were responsible, as we just said, for your decisions and your actions. And um, I put myself in a losing hand, right, from foolish decisions. Um, and, and I kind of lit the, <laughs> the Bunsen burner, uh, you know, for the, the old saying, right, you know, hell hath no fury for, you know, a woman's scorn. And so, um, you know, 100%. We, we are responsible for our decisions. And, and so while that stings and it's horrible and it's frustrating to me, um, the great perspective is, you know, I sit here today with, with a, a lovely wife that um, she has supreme confidence that I'll never make the same mistake again twice. And, you know, I was, I was joked with her. I'd say, you know, what would you rather have? A guy that's cheated once and literally lost everything and realized how stupid it was, or a dude that's never cheated yet and has no idea really how stupid of a decision it would be, right? <laughs> like, um, you know, you, you, you know, you don't want to be twice burned, right? And so, um, you know, it's it's so much about, and, and that was the pride comes before the fall and and ego and and just kind of thinking you walk on water, um, and and the ground will fall out from underneath you, right? Um, and, and I think I said, right, the, the higher you are, the farther you got to fall. And, and, you know, I, I was all the way down, you know, in the quarry, um, you know, when I picked myself back up. Dean, or being down in the trenches, though, you gain a whole lot of knowledge and obviously maybe not the way you wanted to learn, uh, you know, the valuable life lessons that you did. But at the end of the day, you got through it and you're here now um, with 
with much more knowledge than you had before. And, uh, you know, we talked about that five years and what you went through and we kind of synopsed it into 10 minutes, but during that insane journey, you joined the bachelorette or bachelorette, how did you get involved in it? And what were some of the struggles that came with the show where you have to be so vulnerable in front of the entire world? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I never applied. Um, I had a friend that was like a local. So they reach out to local um, agencies or something to say, hey, can you help us recruit local talent? Right. So this person was like, hey, like we're recruiting for the bachelor. She said the bachelor. Like I didn't really remember at the time, I was like, I, I knew the show other than just, hey, you travel around, you do cool shit. Um, I didn't have a lot of perspective on it. I hadn't really watched it, um, but it sounded really cool. And she's like, well, if you're interested, fill out this form. So I filled out this form and it was like, I think when I was done, it was like 30 pages. Like they just ask you just tons and tons of questions. But I just, I, I treated it just like I took it seriously, right? I, I wrote full sentences, which is seems crazy, right? Like, and paragraphs. Well, like we, so I sent it off and within like an hour, ABC gets back to me and they're like, yeah, this is the most thorough application we've ever received. And I'm like, how is that possible? Like, how is nobody writing full sentences? Like, it, it was actually kind of sad, right? It, and, and I should have known then what I was going into and like, what the, the competition was um, when I'm the only one writing in full sentences in a paragraph, right? Um, but uh, <laughs> so they're like, yeah, uh, you, you know, we, we'd love to meet. Yeah. So they brought me out to LA, did like, had a camcorder, legit like a camcorder and did like a screen test and asked me a lot of the same questions that I had already wrote for them. Um, and then they do this thing where they're like, Probably hey, they didn't want to read your full paragraphs. Probably. Yeah. They're like, look, we, this is, this is too much. I, I don't have time to read this much. Idiot. Why couldn't you have just done bullet points? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then they bring you out for this, this thing, like this casting deal that was wild because the, the line that I think got me on the show was, so they put us in this hotel room with essentially security outside. Like we cannot leave our hotel room. And as we're going in, they have, basically handlers with walkie talkies, like they'd walk me 15 feet. They're like, stop. Also, we wouldn't see other contestants as they're kind of going through the hotel. Right. So then like we're in our hotel room, just sitting there, no phone, nothing. We have no, and then all of a sudden you get a knock and someone comes, grabs, you know, like, Hey, we want you to meet the background investigator. Oh, we want you to meet the doctor, you know, all these different people. And so then they take me to this one and it's basically like a simulated, they call them ITMs. So if you ever watch the show, where the guy, I'm just sitting there, I'm like, man, that was a crazy day. I can't believe she said that, right? And I'm just like by myself talking to the camera. Um, what that is, there's like a camera right in front of me with a producer who's just asking me leading questions, right? Um, ITM stands for in the moment. And so that's what it is. So I'm doing one of those and they go, hey, you wanna meet some of my friends? I was like, sure, like walk over this way. I walk through this door and it's just this like big kind of, atrium type thing in a hotel and there's probably 30 producers or cast at the time I didn't know who they were 30 people with a chair right in the middle so I sit down and they're asking me questions and one of them's like um, so if I told you um, you could play in the NHL right now but I'd have to cut off you know uh, you know 
an inch of your your penis, what would you say? I was like, where's the scissors? <laughs> yeah, I think we all agree there. Like, I, I look back and I'm like, man, I missed an opportunity to say, you know, it's fine. I've got an extra seven inches. We'll be fine. But I didn't <laughs> think of that at the time. <laughs> you may not have made it with that one. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, so then you get on, right? And um, I went in at the, it went in pretty open-minded, right? Like, hey, maybe I'll meet some girl, right? Um, I knew pretty quickly that wasn't going to be the case. Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't like attracted in that sense to the girl. So at that stage, my whole thing was, well, I just told everybody I'm going to be gone for a while. So I don't want to embarrass myself and come back in a day. Right. Um, so like, let's stick around and, and at least see how far you can go. Um, and so that was, it was a cool experience. Um, you know, I, I kind of, I always joke and, and make fun of, you know, a lot of the people on the show, some of which are my friends, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, we weren't the 25 most eligible bachelors. I'll tell you that much. We were 25 dudes that had nothing to do at two o'clock on a Tuesday. And so, um, <laughs> you know, the, the eligible bachelors were all at their jobs, right. At the law firms working, right. Not, not, you know, 25 of us who could take up to two months out of work and off the grid, right? I mean, <laughs> come on. Dude. Yeah, no phone, no nothing. Um, yeah, so then reality really, I think that the challenge was the adversity that was faced, right, was um, we were the first season of guys where social media was a thing. And so when we got on the show, it Instagram and Instagram was still nothing. And so it was just, you know, it was basically up and to the right at that stage. Um, none of us were ready or braced for it. And and the show, the season that ended basically when we started filming, which was The Bachelor, had really galvanized and kind of brought this, the show back to popularity and relevance. And so we kind of walked in, you know, the, the, we were the people, the shore receded, right? And we're still picking up, you know, seashells being like, oh, wow, look, there's fish here on the, the ocean floor um, and oblivious to the tidal wave that was coming in. And um, we get off that show and we, we come back, me, I come back after six weeks and, you know, just the, the internet, I guess, was the challenge. There was tons of websites out there that had already identified who we were. Um, that was just grading on us, right? They had already ranked us and, and essentially they had our pictures and they were going through and just, I mean, like, I don't care, but like, I, I made sure that I, so like, you know, that really rude comments about our looks, right? And like, they would post this stuff and then everyone's just ripping us apart. And so the guys would get off and we're starting to text this stuff back and forth. And some of them are starting to really kind of take this personally. And I was like, you know what, this is not going to be a healthy situation. And I kind of saw this in advance. Thankfully, um, I had some perspective. I don't know how or why, but I just thought, I was like, I got to stop reading the press clippings because while I'm not insecure right now, I could easily see myself becoming very insecure um, and letting this bother me. And so I, from that point on, I stopped reading my own press. Um, I didn't Google myself. I didn't read anything. 
Uh, I found out much later my parents did. Um, you know, like they bought all the magazines, they did all this stuff, right? Like they they were in tune to it, but they didn't bring it up to me. They didn't, you know, make me feel weird about it or insecure. So that was nice. Um, but then Twitter hit, right? And once the show starts airing, um, people, you know, that that are <laughs> losers, uh, they will find ways because of jealousy, in my opinion, to seek people out, right? Um, and try and, you know, light them up on Twitter, right? And and try and engage with them and, and troll them and, and all the stuff that you see, right? Um, and so that was, you know, another challenge, right? You just overnight, you're, you know, on, I think the show aired on a Monday, maybe. So on a Monday at 5 p 4 p.m. Mountain Time, I am a nobody. And by 8 p.m. Mountain Time, you know, you are a somebody, right? Because 30 million people just saw who you were, right? And so it's a really weird dynamic um, how fast it changes, right? Um, most celebrities are, are prepped for, right? You, you, you get built into this, right? It starts with a small role here, a small role there, right? It doesn't just happen in a matter of one hour, right? And so, um, or there's mo money associated with it, right? I always joked, I'm like, you know, I could handle, you know, the hate that Brad Pitt gets because I'm getting a Brad Pitt check. Um, you're on The Bachelor, you ain't getting shit, right? All you're getting is the hate, right? And so it's a really interesting dynamic how that works. And so um, I, I think the trolls were, were a, a bit of a deal, but I, I really enjoyed just trolling them back. Um, I never blocked anybody. And my goal was you, you will be blocking me before I ever fucking block you. Um, so that was how I, 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 I took a little bit different approach to it. I'm glad you had thick skin about it. And I think that the thing these keyboard warriors don't really get is like, you know, you're not going to be affected by it because you're dealing with it a lot. But like you said, like your parents are going to go read that article and, you know, maybe your daughter sees something like they don't realize that the internet's forever and everyone's going to see these things. Like, what are they trying to gain? Like you said, it's just through jealousy. They, they wish that they had that fame like you did. Yeah. It, the, the worst is for the females, to be honest with you. Um, and even my wife. Right. So then, you know, when I started dating Kayla, right, the same people that were trolling me start trolling her. And it's so much, it's so much worse trolling the girl because, you know, when you start attacking their looks, or anything about a, a female, you know, that, that stings much deeper, right? A, a guy that what the trolls don't understand is like the guy doesn't take any of the, they're attacking the wrong thing. Right now, if they had told me that, you know, you know, I was a failure as a hockey player. Yeah, that would sting. Right. But they don't understand what actually is my trigger. Right. They're going out like attacking my looks and all this. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Right. Um, and, but like for the, for the females, they, they get it so much worse. Right. And, and I think that that's the sad part is, and it just shows how catty and, and kind of nasty people can be. But, uh, you know, just dealing with that part of it was, was an interesting challenge. Um, ABC does not do a good job. They don't tell us anything. They don't give you any prep. They don't give you any support. Um, and <laughs> they kind of leave you to the wolves and they're like, I think what they hope is, Hey, if he does a great job and manages it, great. If he doesn't and he implodes and he goes, loses his mind, that's fine too. Because for us, that's press. 
now they're talking of, you know, now we're, we're still getting talked about, we're still relevant. Right. Um, and now that character is a, a character. It, they, they have brand that now, Oh, we can put this guy in bachelor in paradise and we're going to bring this storyline up about how he went off on this and that. Right. So, um, yeah, they're, they're sharks on, on that, that kind of thing. Twitter hothead JJ Lane returns to the spotlight. Oh, I mean, you know what they said about me, right? I actually I was, don't. I don't watch. I was yeah, so I was the villain, and then the next week I turned into the gay villain. I was having apparently oh, a relationship wow. with a guy in the house, is what <laughs> um, they 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 edited it to be. Yeah, I mean, it, I I wrote every possible storyline you could imagine. They basically threw on me. It was it was wild. I, I give them credit for creativity. Hey, hockey players get that rap sometimes. We just uh, we love the boys, you know. We're very affectionate. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of burned me. You know, I was I was a little too com- little too comfortable in the in the bachelor mansion. Put it that way. Well, all in all, would you say the experience was worth it? Yes, and and I will say the experience was worth it for one reason. I I met my wife through the bachelor because we would have never known each other existed had it not been for my Instagram, right? Um, and, and I look back and it, it provided some, some experiences and opportunities. Um, you just, you would never get, um, I, I, you know, I gained a handful of really great friends um, and, and kind of the stories, um, <laughs> you know, shit, I wouldn't be at game six of the Stanley Cup finals, right? I, I wouldn't have, um, you know, funny story, I was out, so I, I worked for DU for the radio and, you know, I was out one night with, you know, coach Montgomery, um, another guy and Adam foot rolls in. Right. And he was with coach Monty and Adam foot was a childhood idol of mine for the abs. And we're just drinking the whole night. And, and finally I get the courage. And then I was like, Hey, I, I embarrassed to say this, but like, would you mind taking a picture with me? And he goes, Hey, no, no problem at all. By the way, you were my, you and my wife, uh, you're our favorite character on the, the bachelor. <laughs> wow, like, oh my big time. Yeah. Also like Adam foot knows who you are, right? Like, I mean, that was, so it's like, it's those things. Like I, I was skate. I used to skate Tuesdays at South Suburban in the mornings and like Turgeon, Pierre Turgeon and Milan Hayduk would be out there. Right. Well, Pierre Turgeon was talking to me about the show. Like we're on the bench and he's asking me questions because he watched me. Right. And I'm like, Holy shit. Like this is, you know, guy that should be in the hall of fame right now. And, and so it, those little things made all of the crap totally worth it. Right. And um, you know, you look back now and you just can have a, a cool, you know, in six years, it's been six years. Yeah. Look back and you just got cool stories. Well, JJ, can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. It was unbelievable to hear your story. You were very honest and open. And like we talked about in the middle, I think it can really help listeners out there who, you know, are going through those hard times. And, you know, the days go by a lot slower when you're in a bad place. So seeing someone who's been through it and is now on the other side and has such a great outlook and, you know, such a great life, honestly, I think is really inspirational. So thank you so much. Guys, best of luck with the podcast. You know, I I think you're – in, in a world of, of, I think, mediocre, you know, mediocrity around everyone's got a podcast, right? I think what you guys are doing and trying to, to create your brand and, and your unique audience, it's awesome. And, and 
you know, the, the world needs it. Hockey players need it. You know, hopefully it expands just beyond the ice rinks. Right. But, uh, you know, best of luck and, and to everyone listening, thank you for, for tuning in. Hopefully you guys, you said you have a million subscribers or is it? Oh yeah. Probably like three, four by now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I hopefully that number grows and, uh, you know, I can't wait to see the success. And when you you're back here in Colorado, let me know. Um, Hopefully you're out for a long time playing pro this season, but uh, yeah, love to get a beer and, and connect in person. Absolutely. Thanks, JJ. We appreciate you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Adversity University. You can follow more news about Adversity University on our social media pages. Our Instagram handle is adversity underscore university. Our Twitter handle is adversity underscore UNIV. And our Facebook page is Adversity University. If you know of any high-level athlete or professional that has an interesting story of overcoming adversity and you think they should share it, you can email us at adversityuniversitytalkshow at gmail.com. You can also use that email if you are interested in becoming a sponsor for Adversity University. We look forward to bringing our listeners more content from interesting guests weekly, so stay tuned on social media to see who could be next and what our past guests are up to now.